Warning, this podcast is known by the state of California to contain spoilers. You fool. No man can kill me. Die now. I am no man. And welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. Hello, listeners. Thank you for joining us on this journey, and I can't wait to bring it back home around the long way. That's what she said, yeah. Um, we are talking about the final film in Peter Jackson's live-action trilogy based on the Tolkien books, Lord of the Rings Return of the King. This came out in... 2003, and this won, you know, practically all the Oscars um, that year. It is uh, directed again. Yeah, yeah. Uh, directed by Peter Jackson, uh, same producers, same, uh, you know, written again by Fran Walsh, Philippa Boyens, and Peter Jackson. Um, you know, the main new cast member, there's not a whole lot, and we're talking about the extended version here, if that makes a difference. Uh, John Noble is in it. And uh, he was in a flashback scene, I guess, in Two Towers as the father of Boromir and Faramir. And um, also in a, an extra scene from the extended version, you have, oh, who was the actor that played, like, the uh, the key keeper? Or, no, no, he was the, the man on the gyrocopter in Mad Max. Bruce Spence, is that it? I, I actually, I don't recall who played the gyrocopter operator in Mad Max. Uh, he's also in The Matrix. Um, anyhow, he's in this movie as well, um, in a small scene in the extended version. Yeah, and, and, and even if you're not watching the extended version, this movie is still just shy of three and a half hours long. And we thought yeah. it would never get longer, but we were wrong. With one exception, I would say this is my least favorite of the extended versions. Um, and this is my least favorite film in the trilogy. But some people think this is their favorite. We'll go into why. In a little bit, um, you know, the sort of overview version of the plot is finally Samwise and Frodo are nearing Mordor, where they need to cast the ring into there to get rid of it. But they are, as a guide, they still have Gollum, who may have other treacherous things in mind. And in the meantime, uh, orcs do yet another siege battle, but this time it's during the daytime. And we get lots of epic fantasy battles with lots of epic fantasy things happening. Yeah, I guess you get two big battles, don't you? Um, yeah. Well, I mean, th- this is the most the most fantasy of these three films. Interesting. Monstrous hordes, flying steeds, magic, an army of ghosts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You have an army of, uh, uh, what, oliphants, right? Oh yes, we do get to see a lot of the the other the other people that Sauron brings in from other lands to serve him. 
I watched some of the commentary, and uh, believe it or not, um, this film originally had even more endings where they shot, you know, good, you know, scenes of what Gimli was doing and what Legolas was doing. What but Tom Bombadil Peter, was doing? Yeah, probably. And even Peter Jackson could not bring himself to put those in the extended version because he said it didn't feel right. And people complained so much about all the endings in the film to begin with. Um, and I, I think wanna, the ending is one of the worst would, part of this film. But would you want to talk about the ending in detail now or save that for the ending? I will save that for the ending, I suppose. Right. But I, I just think, you know, when people mention Return of the King, the first thing that comes to mind to some people is all the millions of endings back to back to back. Yeah, a, and, lot, a lot of people chewed over that. And I think with good reason, but we'll get there when we get there. This begins with a, a prequel sequence that um, in the novels they reveal right away in Fellowship of the Ring, but in this they save it for a beginning. And it's not the most um, sort of a tragic beginning. It could even be a self-contained short film, you know. Um, well, it is, it is completely tacked on and unnecessary, and yet Golem proved to be such a breakout character in The Two Towers uh, you know they they had to find more ways to work him in, and so showing his origin story is one way to do that. And I I still really like, even though it is tacked on, uh, I still really like this sequence. I, I find Golem's origin story to be suitably tragic when he's just a nice, playful hobbit, much like our heroes, and then so finds the ring by pure chance while fishing, and com- gives into its uh, corruption so completely and so easily that he immediately betrays and murders his best friend. And it's it's also throwing a bone to Andy Serkis. You get to see what the man actually looks like that was behind the voice and the motion capture work of Gollum. Yes, which, despite the fact that they never tried to hide what he really looked like, a lot of people still treated it like a mystery. Mm, I, you know, there's certain expressions that Gollum does that look like Andy Serkis, but it's not like it's a one-to-one match. Um, so you're saying they had to put makeup on Andy Serkis to make him look human? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the you know the face of Gollum does not look exa- it's the other way around. I mean, the face of Gollum does not look exactly like Andy Serkis. There's some expressions certainly, but the uh, the proportions, the teeth, the um, all these things, and yeah, it's just a nice. I just love that Smeagol's friend is named Deagle, and they have rhyming names. That's cutesy, isn't it? Um, but it's well, a nice. Tolkien. It's it's a gentle, then suddenly tragic uh, sequence. That it, it's sort of a bit of a an appetizer, right? Or an aperitif. A, a little alcohol drink that you drink to aid with the digestion before you go into the big meal. And this film is nothing but a big meal. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this one. Um, in fact, you could argue this contains, you know, half of the two towers plus the whole book, Return of the King. There's a lot in it. That is Yeah, it's overstuffed. Nowadays, they probably split this into two movies, don't you think? Uh, I would not put that past the studio today, uh, especially given that they split The Hobbit into three movies. Mm, we'll get to that when we cover The Hobbit at some point, but yes. Maybe next year. Maybe. Yeah, you can't have too much Tolkien. Um, but, or can you? The you know the thing that comes to mind, though, that's the huge, biggest, biggest difference with the extended version is in the theatrical version, after this, you sort of get, oh, the, uh, you know, the, the humans, they meet up with uh, Merry and Pippin, and the trees have locked away uh, Saruman behind bars and say, oh, he won't be causing any trouble. And it's it's very cheap and strange for how powerful a wizard that he's taken care of sort of off screen. But in this version, we get a 
a pretty delightful scene in which there's a, a final conflict between Gandalf and Saruman and Aragorn and all those people, and you get Grimo Wormton has some great moments in there. Yeah, actually, yeah, that's something I, I, that I think completely passed us by when we covered Two Towers, is we didn't talk about the ants laying siege to Sauron's tower. No, because so much happens in that film, so we can touch on that now, but yeah, you have... Well, that's a, that's a really fun sequence. I just like giant trees hurling boulders. <laughs> I just love too the you know way they they break the dam to destroy sort of the orc um, stronghold, but then it's it the water is flushing a lot of the ants away as well, so the ants are having to grab onto uh, try and put their roots down or grab onto other ants to prevent from being washed away. There's a lot of real fine animation work that you don't see too much in detail because they play it in wide shots to get that scope of the battle. Um, but you're right, this sort of follows on from that. And originally, uh, I, I listened a bit to the commentary watching Return of the King this time around, and uh, they mentioned they were thinking of ending um, the Two Towers movie with this confrontation between them and Sauron, but they felt like it would have been too much. And then when they when they, they claimed, when they put it in, there just wasn't enough time to stick it into the beginning. Um, famously, when the theatrical version of Return of the King came out, Christopher Lee was very upset that that scene was not in there. Um as he should have been, because his character is such a big... You know, it doesn't have a lot of lines necessarily, but he's sort of the, the, the big evil presence, uh, personified as a human at least. And uh, and then you sort of take him out, you sort of, you know, take him out anticlimactically in the theatrical version. and so It's a very nice scene. I, I rather like it. What do you think? Over... I mean, ov- overall I like it. This is, this is still... So th- this, looking back at it, this is... I can't tell whether this is my second favorite or third favorite uh, film in this trilogy because I've, I've already talked about Two Towers overall being my favorite, and, and I'm all, I'm always torn because this is for me this is the most fun of the three films. I enjoyed watching this hmm. so much, and and yet it does go I it does go too far with the fantasy elements. I mean, once you're recruiting an army of ghosts to fight for you uh, in in a something in a sequence that is not set up at any point in the previous two films, as cool as the, as cool as that ghost army is, I I don't I feel like it's too much for me. Well, here you know, much like um, Two Towers, this movie sort of splits off into three different plot stories. Which one do you want to talk about first? Well, let's 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 talk about uh, the hobbits. I guess excluding the the thrilling climax, Frodo and Samwise. Yes. Okay, great. So, as was teased at the end of the second film, you know there would be like, oh, you you can't, we can't wait till you see her. You know, we'll, we'll take you to her. She'll take care of the hobbits. But it doesn't get to that quite as fast as perhaps it should, because we we have the more scenes of um, Samwise doubting Gollum, and in fact, he catches Gollum muttering, "Kill them, kill them all," in his sleep. Yeah, and they really uh, and they really do double down the golem golem going mad and golem talking to himself in this film. They do, and perhaps because of the popularity of the character. It, although it's a nice scene, I don't think it's really needed. I think, especially for the the final film in a trilogy, you need to keep things moving along. And um, I, I find the pacing of this film to be kind of terrible. Um, and part of that is in the books too. It, it there's a lot going on in that final book, but. Everything is given such great import, and it, it already feels, even the theatrical version, I think, as, as you were hinting at, feels like a director's cut. 
Well, I think I think what it is is they they want you to feel that the the whole world is is teetering on the brink of chaos and oblivion, but the movie moves so fast and is packed with so much stuff, you never really get a chance to truly feel that. You never get a moment to rest and let the emotions settle on you. I guess that's the thing because, you know, we we get the well, I mean, I guess we should get to that point. Uh Frodo and Sam eventually, you know, they they get closer and closer, and and you you see the I do love the shots of the Mordor in the background with all the fire in the sky, and it's very ominous. And um, they get to a point where they should. Or Gollum says they have to climb this sheer wall to get you know further, and and they can't really do it. And uh, they go into the cave instead, where Shelob, the giant spider, uh, awaits them. Yeah, we do get a, pr- a pretty a pretty uh, fun monster scene uh, during for the giant spider attacks. It's very good. In fact, I'd argue it's better than any of the monster scenes in Peter Jackson's King Kong film. Um, and I just... do, I I do like, and I also do like that 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 Shelob, it does like is an intelligent creature, but just does not give a damn about what's going on in the world at large. He has no interest in the ring. Probably doesn't even know it exists. Uh, is just ha- is just happy to have an easy meal wander her way. <laughs> Not just that, but she, you know, the way the animation is quite realistic. How it, she scutters around, and you know, goes fast and then slow, kind of like a real spider. Um, she's pretty horrific looking. In fact, they did the art team uh, for this movie did a contest to determine who, um, you know, what the head of Shelob should look like because they made a point like this. The spider body they sort of agreed upon, but the head, it had to read good on camera, it had to look, you know, display some sort of emotion, kind of, and um, I, I think they, they made a good choice of, of with how the spider looks and how big it is, and they, they mentioned it for um, Sean Ashton, what a difficult acting job it is where a character is fighting against a giant CG creature where he's stabbing against nothing, <laughs> and, um, and they do a, a, a mix of they do a lot of transition between CG Samwise and real life Samwise, where it's like he's climbing on the back of the spider and gets thrown off, and then he gets up, and then it's the real guy. There um, aren't too many seams in those transitions. I mean, you can you can still tell when it's a CGI Samwise, but it's not jarring when it moves between the live action and the CGI. And it really helps that uh, Samwise that um, it's in a cave and it's kind of darker to begin with, right? That's always a, a classic. The, the Godzilla movie from 99 um, did that same sort of trick. But if you have CG monsters and you keep them in rooms that are certain locations that are sort of dark, that can sort of hide some of the seams with the integration with the live action. Um, which which I, I wish more films did. I mean, it, 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 only mm-hmm. makes, it only makes this effect better. Right, because if you show CG in, in pure daylight, which you get a lot, especially with superhero films, it just looks really pasted on. And because, in a sense, well, of course it is, um, because you're, you're doing a computer element and superimposing it on the real thing. So, but there you go. That's a discussion for a different time. Um, I, I love the horrific image we get of Sam Wise finds Frodo completely wrapped in the web like a mummy. Oh yeah, and it's just like a like get, getting him out of that web is just such a, a sort of a grotesque birthing image. I mean, definitely the, this whole Shelob spider sort of sequence is Peter Jackson going back to his horror gross-out roots 
a bit uh, in the middle of this fantasy film. Um, and I think it works very well. And then, and then they get captured by the orcs. Is that right? Uh, yes, yes, and they are they are taken taken to an orc fortification and uh, and tortured. And and that's and it mainly just serves to to bring uh, to bring uh, Frodo and Sam to a very low point. Do you think the sequence of them escaping uh, works? It's a bit slapsticky. You know, in in any version of the scene where they escape, whether it's in the novel, this movie, or or the animated film we reviewed on the previous sequel cast. The escape always seems too easy to me. So I don't mind it being slapstick. It, I do mind that it starts to feel effortless. You get the idea that Tolkien was stuck writing the book and like needed to invent something like a purely a device to get the story moving. Well, if this was any other Tolkien novel, if this was any other Middle-earth novel, this is where Gandalf would show up and unlock their chains and help them get out using some simple magic. But mm. Gandalf is predisposed, so as a result, they just get they just get really lucky. Which is a shame. I would love to I would love to see them use more of their wits to to get out of this situation. Right. Um, it, it, it makes me wonder if it, if it is a side effect of Tolkien leaning too hard on Gandalf as a device. Well, Gandalf is deus ex machina, right? He just comes in and saves the day out of nowhere constantly, especially in the original Hobbit uh, novel. And it's... Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it could have, it should have been more of a, of a struggle, or even you could have made it a suspense sequence. Where they're trying to sneak out and not get noticed, make it a bit like Metal Gear Solid in that way, perhaps. Or um, a Hitchcock film. Yes, that's a better comparison. Um, and it, it, it's just, you, th you think with all the trouble they get into and how many orcs there are and how dangerous the orcs are and how frail the hobbits are, it, it'd be more of a struggle and it's not, and that's a bit disappointing. And I guess uh, after this, it sort of goes into the, the final sequence of the film, which we want to save that for the end. Is that right? Yeah, let, let's save the ascent uh, of Mount Doom till the end. Great. So now let's jump back to um, the opening scene of the extended version after the sort of Smeagol sequence, in which they take care of Sourman and Warmton. Um, I think this is a pretty neat scene, and it's in a way it's an adaptation of what happens in the... Um, one of the many endings of the book is the the Shire gets you know set on fire and, and all this stuff and the, the the sacking of the Shire which, which the Shire, lots yes. of people were critical that it was not depicted in the original release of, of these films. It's one of the best parts of the novel, in my opinion. Um, and I, I get the movie has so many storylines it's trying to tie up, but surely they could have trimmed some of that to to bring a sacking of the Shire sequence and just to see the. The hobbits kind of band together and, and defeat these uh, these monsters that are taking that are ruining Hobbiton as a really sort of wholesome, uh, nice come up at this moment. But uh, what do you think of this the scene between Christopher Lee and Wormton and the, the heroes? Well, th this this is where my pre search fails because I did not have time to watch the extended edition of this film in preparation uh, for the show. Okay. Have you it's seen like, it before, or no? Uh, re regrettably, regrettably, no. This 
this movie really hits a critical mass of hours as far as the extended edition goes. And I've, I've never been able to just flat out sit down and watch it all. Sure, no, the the film as it is exists. So I'll just describe it then if you don't mind. Um, oh, no, right ahead. Yep. So, Severman is in the tower, so is Wormton, and Gandalf is saying, like, oh, you must come down, and Severman's like, well, how can you treat me this way, Gandalf? We were once such friends, and you get some pretty good speeches. And then, um, in the meantime, also down there you have... Oh, what's his, was it Theoden, I think? The King Theoden? The, Believe so. Yeah, and he's saying saying to Grima, you know, once you were a normal man, you were not always like this. Come down and join us. You don't have to stay with him, because otherwise you're going to get hurt. And um, Sauerman slaps Grima down to the ground over for some reason or other, and that gets Grima so angry, he sneaks up behind... Uh, Saruman, as he's giving a speech, stabs him in the back, pushes him off the tower, and um, Saruman gets impaled on a wheel outside of the tower. Meanwhile, um, Legolas is trying to take a shot to hit um, Saruman, and instead, he hits Grima Wormton, killing him. Hmm. Now, do you th- now do you th- Legolas is portrayed as so hyper competent, almost to a comical degree in this third film. Do you think he was really trying to hit Wormtongue? Because that feels like such a weird mistake to make. Uh, it's a weird mistake, and that moment, frankly, doesn't work. It, it it's trying to be a surprise reveal, and it, it just I don't think that's really needed. I think you could have, I don't know, they could have done something else. Maybe when when Grima stabs. Saruman, uh, Saruman cast a spell or something to kill him. I don't know, but it's but certainly the impact of Saruman getting impaled is is sort of gory, and uh, you get to to drive the point home. You get an extreme close up of the wheel turning to open the the, the door to let get down the drawbridge um, for the castle, and you see his body impaled. You know, getting squished in the mud to add insult to injury. It is a. Um, it's a good sequence, and it, it feels strange at the beginning of the film. I think they could have fit that at the end of the Two Towers. Um, but on the other hand, the Two Towers is so packed as it is. That, I mean, that's the problem. They have too many sequences to squeeze into three movies. So hmm. I like the scene. At the same time, it feels feels a bit much, but it's a nice moment for Christopher Lee. And um, uh, uh what's his name this is gonna kill me blah 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 it, it will because of that curse yeah warm tongue god damn it he was the voice of chucky why can't i think of his name <laughs> time to do some research blah 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 brad dwarf yes very good um show ah, blah 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 yeah so there, there's that scene and then they go with the heroes and um let's talk about more what happens in the the sort of human part of the story next because they they sort of split up right you do have everyone with mary and pippin they're all together they they celebrate they have beers you have a comical scene in which um gimli and i can't think this morning gimli and legolas yes have a drinking contest right sort of like they had a contest with killing people yes do you find this pretty insulting as far as 
well, dwarf guess, slapstick. Because I, I mean, guess, Gimli has nothing to do in these movies. Like he's not really much of a character. Yeah, and, and that it, it really frustrates me in these these films because I I don't I don't mind. I mean these these are supposed to be a band of heroes. They're they're supposed to be you know good highly skilled people who are sent off to uh, to do these dangerous things, but. Once once they established this series of escalating contests between Legolas and, and Gimli, it only succeeds in making Gimli look like a, ba- a barely competent fool. I mean, he can still be a source of re- a comic relief and still be good at what he does. But I I don't I I got I got really I got really really tired of their their attempts at one upsmanship in this film. It. It it just felt it felt so forced and unnecessary, and it made me made me dislike both characters. And it's and it's actually it's the same problem I have with the with poorly written Batman material. Uh, once you make the character competent enough, I can't care about what they do because the solution to every problem will simply be they always win. It's kind of like the Sherlock Holmes problem, right? Well, at least with Sherlock Holmes, you get to see the process, mm, right? Um, you know he's in a, in a, in a, you know Sherlock Holmes. Well, really, okay, a good Sherlock Holmes story, a good Batman story. You you can write the character into a corner, but it's a good story when they use their wits or a creative solution to get out of it. It's a bad story if their solution is I'm Batman or I'm Sherlock Holmes. And then just suddenly by magic they've won. I think one thing in this sort of drinking celebration sequence that does work is you get Pippin and Mary dancing on a table, drinking their beer, singing a story about the Green Dragon Inn. And, or the uh, Prancing and, Pony. Oh, the, mm, they say Green Dragon. I could so. have sworn it's a song about the Prancing Pony, but I'll def- I'll defer to you on this one. Yeah. But no, I do, I do like that, I do like that little jig. <laughs> it's a nice little jig, it's a nice moment of levity, you could have had that and not had the, you know, the drunken elf nonsense although you do get a i think one funny line in there where clearly they've had like a dozen pints and gimli sort of passes out and then meanwhile it, it goes over to legolas who's standing ramrod straight and saying no oh, i feel a slight tingle in my fingers <laughs> so different uh hold their liquor differently i suppose and um and then after that little break we move on to um, the uh, Sauron's army is attacking Osgiliath, which of course has Faramir defending it, and Faramir dies. And eventually, we get the um, the heroes go to oh, what the hell? Blah blah blah. Minister. Some... Is that it? Is that the White Fortress? Is that what it's called? Uh, I believe so. Yes. Yeah. I mean, thank you. Um, in in Gondor. So many names in here. Yeah. I was thinking G, and then I was also <laughs> thinking of the 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 battering ram thing, which has some other name too. But yeah, right. So they go to Minas Tirith, and that's where Gandalf and um, Pippin go. But on the meantime, you have Aragorn and and Merry, or they're trying to. Uh, you know, they want to get support from the dead man of Dunharrow, and this is where you, you hinted at the sort of idiotic pirate sequence, which is even more extended. It feels like something out of the Frighteners, really. And um, 
one thing that's fun about the sequence is it has cameos from Peter Jackson and much of the technical staff, but it's it's so not needed, man. Like there's well, so much shit going on. Well, and it all it all happens because a debt of honor is being called in from a bunch of restless souls that are restless because they were dishonored in death in a war generations past, and it's like there so much stuff has to get explained so quickly for this scene to make any sense whatsoever. Uh, which is a shame because like the ghosts look great. It's great to see them fighting. Yes, yeah, it's yeah, it's yeah. a triumph of effects, but the storytelling is just way off. It is, and it just seems like it's busy work for for them to do as they kind of build up for another battle. But yes, we have. Um, but the big thing up Minas Tirith is we have some pretty good scenes with we get to meet the father of um, oh of Sean Bean and uh, the other fella. <laughs> I am not good with my fantasy names this morning. John Noble. No, well, so many of them Denethor. have odd accents and are not written in in languages. That we, well, we and then the name. Oh, well, yeah, it's Denethor, and his sons are Faramir and Boromir. Which, uh, Tolkien uses a lot of similar names, and you, you make me, you know, it makes me wonder if it's because he had trouble coming up with names, so he just came up with rhyming ones. I, or... I don't think he had trouble coming up with names. I think I think it purely comes down to he sort of created. You know, he created languages and cultures that had a certain sound, and he reinforces those sounds whenever possible, and that does mean a lot of rhyming names. Mm-hmm. Um, also, it's sort of like the, you know, he's it was nothing else if not a, um, a linguist and interested in, in ancient writings like um, Beowulf and so forth, which does a lot of similar things. But yeah, we meet John Noble as Denethor, and what strikes me as strange is, like, his sort of mini-storyline we get here is quite similar to Theoden's story from the Two Towers, right? And that. Well, well, yeah. It's all. It's all. It's all about somebody, you know, pre- you know, preparing for a position of, of authority that they're inevitably going to have because this is a feudal society. Except in this one too, you know, with uh, with Theoden, he started as bad, and they made him good again. And this one, they're not able to get Denethor to redeem himself. Um, he's just like full blown mad. And uh, it's a less subtle performance than Bernard Hill did as Theoden. Um, but it, in, in a way, it's nice to have some histrionics and some classic um, sort of scenery scene munching. Chewing. Scenery chewing, yeah. I said scene munching. That, that's not <laughs> entirely right. But yeah, it, I think he does a good job. And, you know, later he'd become more famous being in such uh, TV shows as um, Fringe. Oh, yes. So, so what do you think of John Noble in this in this show? He does, he does, he does fine. There's just so much going on in this movie that that for me his performance gets a little lost. Right, especially where he he sets his son's body on fire, sets it on fire, then he sets himself on fire, and then <laughs> yeah. he somewhat comically, in my opinion, runs. <laughs> To the runs outside and throws himself off the ledge of um, Minas Tirith, and this and this actually speaks this speaks to one of the things that does make it difficult for me 
to to enjoy a lot of fantasy works, and and I've I've long sort of had this as as, as part of my 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 taste in literature, is that so so many fantasy stories deal with kings and barons and and people in these these feudal structures. And it makes me really difficult to completely sympathize with the heroes because the heroes are so often nobles, and all you are as a noble is a person with an entrenched leadership position. You don't get it because you're competent. You get it from your because you're descended from the last person who had it. Yes, and like you know, I you you will rule without accountability. Uh, and you're, and if you're not a mad king, well, surely one of your descendants is going to turn out to be a mad king. And the system's only going to keep that person in power until they have laid waste to the kingdom. So, the, the, and, and this this just kind of speaks to that. It just reminds me, oh, oh yeah, I don't want any nobles in charge. I want the people of, of Minas Tirith to rise up and have an election to determine who's in charge. Yeah, you're talking about sort of the Caligula effect, I think. That's a good word for it, yeah. Mm-hmm. The uh, So, what we have here is... We had the um, Battle of Helm's Deep was in Two Towers. In this one, there's the Battle of Pelennor Fields. And I think it's not nearly as good as Helm's Deep. And um, I think there might be just too much business going on. It doesn't help that it's in the daytime as opposed to at night and at rainy, when it's rainy. You know, that gave such a nice texture to Helm's Deep. And Pelennor Fields, it just seems like it's a, it's a CG showcase. You feel a bit like a George Lucas portraying... Um, Return in Return of the Jedi, Jabba's Palace of oh look how many Muppets I can fuck into a scene. <laughs> like it just seems like the battlefield of Pelennor Fields is a victory lap for the CG wizards at Weta Digital. It it does, and yet that's kind of what I like about it. Um, really, you because, do? Okay, yeah. Well, I, I, like it's I, I find it just a, jo- a joy to watch these these battle scenes, and I I, I, I just love the, the the balls of let's do the biggest, most well lit fantasy battle anyone's ever seen. Um, I, I also like that it doesn't rely on a lot of slow motion as a lot of later CGI battle scenes would do. Um, Sure. I think the, the only thing about these battles that that doesn't quite work for me, and I think this is a carryover from the novel, is that it does feel sort of very episodic. It's like, okay, this group has to get together and fight. Okay, yes, they right. fought. Now let's yep. get the next group together and fight. Okay, they fought. Now it's time for the Witch King to face off against uh, Eowyn. And... Yeah, it does feel like little check marks are being knocked off. Um... But but it's everything. It's humans, orcs. Uh, dwarves, uh, flying mm. steeds, magic, ghosts. I mean, it's, it's kind of everything you could have in this kind of battle short of a god showing up. I love the detail of on the oliphants on their tusk. They have, like, spears tied to the tusk. Or different oh, yeah, paint some jobs of them have, them. like, arrows embedded in mm. them. And, well, and and speaking like of the... the arrows, it's funny. I listened to the commentary, and they mentioned one of the early cuts of the film... They did a lot more gory insert shots of arrows and, and swords being stabbed into the oliphants to the point where the test audiences felt sorry for the oliphants. Well, they're, 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 like, they're gorgeous creatures, and I, I like that they, they're elephants with just the most minor embellishments to make them more fantastical. Yes, right. You know, like the extra tusks uh, that are slightly exaggerated. They and, and the funny thing is, the first time I saw the elephant design, it was on, I think, an action figure. Uh, oh the, wow! The okay. Came out before the movie, and it looked awful as an action figure, and I was <laughs> waiting to hate them and hoping that they cut around them whenever possible. But seeing them move on the screen uh, was just a delight. I mean, they they move like something with real weight behind them. Yes, they have real heft to it, 
It's, um, you know, a movie we're talking about in a few weeks is going to be the, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, and Spider-Man is, doesn't always have heft in his scenes. But yeah, the, these Oliphants, they feel heavy, they feel dangerous, they feel... Um, and uh, the bit of business, it's a bit ridiculous. They want to give Legolas something cool to do, so they have him climb on top of an elephant. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, this, this goes into this sort of a comical level of competence that I talked about earlier. Right, and they said they felt, uh, when I was listening to the commentary this time around watching the film, um, which it's a pretty good commentary for what it's worth, I listened to the one with the directors, They on the extended versions, if you can believe it, they have four separate commentaries on each film. Hmm. That's, that's like over three dozen hours of commentaries. Um, they, they mentioned they felt like they were obligated to include a Legolas sequence because people loved him sort of surfboarding down the uh, Helm's Deep Stairs so Did much. Did people love that? Because I, I uh, had a hard time with that, but I'm also not the typical film goer. I think that's what, it, maybe like the typical feedback they got, like, oh, is that so cool, right? But it, I, I think that's a bit dopey, but that's not nearly as dopey as the, it, you know, it feels a bit like something from the God of War video games where he's climbing up the elephant and, <laughs> you know, stabbing the head or whatever he does. It's, um... Yeah, not not the best sequence. This this Pelennor Field bit goes along. Uh, it's kind of a long sequence for me, but it, you're right. It is nice the variety of creatures you have fighting each other. Um, well, actually, can we can we talk about one creature in particular? Uh, can we can we talk? Uh, let me make sure I'm getting his his name correct. Um, can we? The Gothmog, talk the, yeah, Gothmog. That's it. Can we talk about Gothmog? the lumpy orc? Yeah, yeah. Because on the on the one hand, I think that is a great design for a post-apocalyptic mutant. Uh, <laughs> he, he looks. His design is so thoroughly inconsistent from all the other orcs. He looks like a whole different breed of a fantasy creature, and it looks great until he moves. The moment his mouth or eyes move. You, he looks just like a giant puffy foam head, which is what he is. Yes. But with the right makeup and the right angles, you wouldn't be able to... T- it would look more like a big, a real big lumpy head and not a big lumpy foam head. And this is the one... I think this is the one area where, for me, shooting everything in broad daylight fails. You're right. He, he doesn't look as cool. I, I forget the character's name, but they have sort of a, a similar, like, bad orc general creature that gets... Um, or an Urukai, I suppose, that gets knocked off in two towers. That's sort of the boss creature, right? And that's what Gothmog does here. And Gothmog, he looks a bit like a like a reject from Meet the Feebles. I don't know. Like I do like his lumpiness. I like how different he looks. But you're right. He looks so different. It draws so much attention to himself. And that it looks uh, a bit hokey. And um, we, we should talk about that part. You know, like while this Pelennor Fields is going on, some orcs reach Minas Tirith and... They bring out this, it's cool and stupid at the same time. They bring out this battering ram that has like flames at the in the front that's like on fire in the front that they use to try and knock down the door. Which, that has to be just to be intimidating. That fire couldn't possibly help with beating down the door. 
No, because of the physics of the battering ram, as it goes forward, wouldn't the flame, like, dissipate? Like, it doesn't even show it catch the door on fire at all. Well, it's probably like a grease fire or an oil fire or a tar fire or something like that. But, but yeah, I think that fire is just to look cool. Because there's nothing set up as if that's, like, magic fire that's that somehow enchanted the battering ram. Oh, that ram. would have been something, right? Have a scene with... Yeah, have the Dark Sauron. Lord use some of his Dark Lord power uh-huh. for once. Right, yeah, <laughs> instead of... <laughs> And that that's and that's actually another another thing that I am critical of in again in every version of Lord of the Rings, is that we never really get a sense of the power of Sauron. Um, it no, would be you don't. Nice if just once he brought forth a dark miracle or something. Right, or or called down you know some demonic forces like, from like years at this, past. At this point, he shouldn't be a distant. A distant threat. He, uh, Sauron should be looming over a- absolutely everything, even if Sauron's not going to get directly involved. And in the book, you get more of the sense with the Frodo and Sam storyline of that they're being watched constantly and are in constant danger every step they take, but they don't do a good job of um, pulling that off in the film. By the way, the running time of the extended version of Return of the King is 251 minutes. Um... About, I think, 20 of which are, um, I don't know if you recall this, but when Return of the King came out, or or when they were prepping the extended version, if you made a donation of a certain amount of money to some, um, through some official website, you would get your name in the extended credits of Return of the King. Wow. Yeah, so that's over twenty minutes hours. Of, yeah, so you get, there's, I think, it could be exaggerating, but I'm not by much, uh, 20 minutes of credits of fans who, who ponied up the money, which went to a good cause. Oh, you yeah, know, it, it wasn't like Peter Jackson slipped it in his pocket but, to, to, to pay the King Kong effects bill. But, yeah. But Roseanne Alexander Platts, eat your heart out. <laughs> it, it's just really one of those... It's a nice gesture, but maybe they could have printed the, uh, the names in a little book <laughs> instead of... in a booklet, instead of putting it at the end of the movie. Like, it feels so... Uh, this is not the movie you want to tack on an extra 20 minutes of credits to. I think in any movie, I think you, you wouldn't want to do that. Um, it's a nice gesture, but so be it. <laughs> so, um, you, once the orcs breach Minas Tirith, you get a really nice scene of uh, Pippin, you know, rushing out. He decided to arm himself and be brave, and Gandalf has to try and save him, but then uh, it's revealed Pippin kills an orc that's about to stab Gandalf. I like that Pippin gets a moment to be a hero. Like it, it really, it really does hammer home one of the the messages of both the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings that that you know it does, size and strength that aren't what make a hero. That's right, and I, I find that so I find that so so charming. And in a lesser movie, that scene would be comical because this little guy took down a big monster. I love that it's played straight, and I love that you really you really feel for for him and Gandalf in that moment. Well, and Gandalf the White has a good moment where he, he sees that um, Pippin, you know, stabbed stabbed an orc, and he smiles and says, "Hobbits are wondrous things." And then he tells him, "Oh, go back in the castle. You know, you don't need to <laughs> be out yeah. here among all the the madness." And uh, it's I think the the stuff where they breach Minas Tirith works better than the Battle of Pelennor Fields for me because it's a bit more intimate. Well, um, well, beyond that, there are real stakes just beyond one army killing another. There are civilians in there. This is a this uh, yes, is a yes, hub of yeah. civilization. The no matter who wins or loses, there will be devastating consequences based on this attack. 
so why don't we talk about the um, Erwin fighting the Witch King, and then we'll talk about sort of the big sort of melee battle Aragorn has um, against the hordes of the uh, Sauron's forces. So, so in the 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 iconic, you know, you know, no man can defeat me. I am no man. People in the audience cheered, and some yes. people flat out stood up and started applauding. This really hit home uh, uh, when I saw this in theaters. And that's interesting, considering the Witch King isn't introduced very well. You know, <laughs> he just sort of plops in and kills Theoden, and you can tell he's a bad dude. Um, well, like like the like the Ghost Army, he should be introduced earlier, and we should see him do something unquestionably horrific and badass and powerful. In the extended version, at least, this might be in the theatrical one too. I don't, I haven't seen the theatrical one since it was in theaters. Um, they mentioned the Witch King is the Black Rider that stabbed um, Frodo, Frodo, and Fellowship. Yeah, I don't think that comes up in the in the original cut. He's okay. just sort of sort of there. You know, Even he's then, part that, of the Nazgul, yeah. but the fact that he has history earlier in the trilogy isn't well established. Right, but even then, the way they bring that up sort of is um, kind of cheesy and like at the last second, like it, it's sort of you're forcing the lore and the flavor text right before a big battle. But it, it's a great battle sequence and. Uh, Oh, and something else I can say about about the, the the Nazgul in general and the Witch King, I love their flying steeds. I love that they mm. made dragons that didn't that don't look like typical dragons. Those weird heads that are part serpentine but also part part eel. Uh, I I, yes, I love how yeah. those look. That's such a great design. Oh no, and then the the detail in the wings. It's um yeah, just really well done. Well, like the like the Oliphants, they 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 fly like something that has weight. Mm-hmm. Just the rippling of those leathery wings as they swoop in—it it really is. It, it's 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 one of those designs that does make me realize that everyone in, in these scenes has every right to be terrified when one of these shows up. Exactly, it's uh. But on the other hand, I think the sort of extended melee battle sequence that Aragorn and Gimli and uh, Legolas have, where they're sort of fighting the forces, Sauron's forces, and they said, we're doing this for Frodo, we're doing, you know, it, it, it strikes me as a little cheesy. Um, we do get an extended sequence with Bruce Spence in the extended version of he's sort of this gatekeeper to Mordor, and he, it's this great design with these creepy, sharp teeth. And he speaks in a really low voice. It's not needed, of course, but it's a neat visual. Well, I guess that's something that I, I, I've got to applaud uh, uh, Peter Jackson and, and Weta Workshop and all these people for, is that they don't let anything look boring. Even stuff that's supposed to be mundane, they, right. they give it a striking appearance, and it's consistent throughout every shot of these films. Like, even the connective tissue, such great care has been taken. Sure. Um, what do you think about that big battle, though, at the end, where it's sort of, they're fighting the big sort of trolls um, in front of the gate? Well, it's, it's, it's nice to see the trolls, like, doing more than lugging, lugging siege equipment around. Uh, I, I do enjoy seeing them going to town on the trolls. What's and funny I can't is, help but feel sorry for the trolls because they do they do start to come off as just brutes who have been tr- 
I don't know if tricked is the right word, but they, they seem like something that as long as they could fill their bellies, they'd never be a threat to anybody, and the orcs are just taking advantage of, of their, their, their tendencies to use them as siege weapons. One thing in the behind-the-scenes materials that's pretty fascinating is originally it wasn't trolls that uh, Aragorn was fighting. Really? Yeah. Um, at one point, it was sort of, they made, I think, like a big orc general guy, and they thought that didn't look big enough. At another point, they had, really leaning more into the fantasy aspect, where you had a, a, a vision, a being came down that was like an, an angel, and then he revealed himself to be sort of like a, a demon that he had to fight, which visually, that looked really cool, but then they decided to change it to the cave troll. I think um, the cave troll is a better choice, although you got to wonder, if they wanted something big and threatening, why not just bring in, uh, bring in more Balrogs? Oh, yeah. You could do a Balrog. You could do... Um, what if you had, like, the, the ghost of uh, Sauron? Of, sorry, Saruman. Well, how do you kill a ghost? Uh, through the power of love. <laughs> they pull out <up> the <laughs> Matrix of Leadership and they play You've Got the Touch. All <laughs> the ghosts are destroyed. Oh, no, I mean, literally all the heroes just run up and start kissing him. It's like, no, no, too many oh. kisses. Oh, like Ernest Scared Stupid. Yes. <laughs> oh, I, I, I disagree. I don't think that would be a good choice. Listeners, you decide. Um, so, we have that big part of the story. And then finally, to the sort of start of the many endings of the film, Sam and Frodo uh, and Gollum or, or and Mardor, where they have the lava down below. And... Um, I thought this sequence is, is sort of, it's well shot, but it was never my favorite part of the book. I I rather like this. This makes the whole, I mean, the, 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 the trilogy has been enjoyable, but this makes the whole trilogy worth it for me. Um, the, the end of this, the end of this journey, the whole bit, uh, like that, that bit where like where Frodo can't go on and Sam, I was like, well, I can't carry the ring, Mr. Frodo, but I can carry you and just, you know, picking him up like that, the final confrontation with Golem, that they don't shy away from showing the blood when Golem bites Frodo's finger off. And just the destruction of the ring is given the appropriate weight, and and to the film's credit, I can't help but feel sorry for Golem when he dives in after the ring and is burned in, it burned in the fires of Mount Doom. It, it, yeah, I, I don't know what it is that makes it I guess I'm expecting more action or, or something, and that the bad guy just sort of takes the rain and skips into the lava. Yeah, I don't know. It just strikes me as anticlimactic, but it's it's ironic, certainly. Well, I think um, what it might come down to is, like, I don't, I don't find it anticlimactic, but I think that's because I have so thoroughly invested in Frodo, Sam, and Golem at this point. Sure. And um, I, I think they get kind of the short thrift, especially in this film. They're, well, they're away from the majority of the action. They are, and they're they less are of a focus, I think. Uh, right, ultimately it is their story, but you're, they focus so much on the human stuff, and it, it's... I don't envy anyone that has to adapt Lord of the Rings or, or any Tolkien, really, because you have so much going on, what do, you, what do you concentrate on? And no matter what you do, people are going to complain about it. Um, so then, after Gollum sacrifices uh, himself inadvertently... And destroys the ring. Um, what do you think of the millions of endings we have here? All right. So the, 
this film received a lot of harsh criticism for these multiple endings. I didn't mind. I didn't think they dragged on. This is the move. This is the trilogy's victory lap, and I accepted that. And I like these characters enough that it did my heart good to see each character get a little bit of business at the end to wrap themselves up, and you know the passing along of the Red Book of Westmarch and such. No, I can understand people wanting to leave the theater once the action's over, but I don't know. I felt I felt I felt very touched. Like the, the each one of these little these little coda scenes. They they they, so they felt like they felt like a letter from home. But don't you think it feels more like a proper ending to the movie, of when you know Aragorn is is now the the one true king, and um, they the hobbits bow towards him, and he says, "Oh no, we should bow towards you," and then it gets a wide shot, and everyone is bowing towards the hobbits. Oh yeah, yeah, you you absolutely could flat out cut there, and maybe they should have, maybe they should have saved these scenes for the extended edition. But I, I found I found them so pleasant. I, I couldn't really understand why why people objected to them so fiercely. They don't. I mean, do they're, a, they're dessert. Yeah. Who doesn't want dessert after a meal? They don't do a great job of setting up the Grey Wardens and what that means exactly. Oh, the Grey Havens. Grey Havens, yes. Well, yeah. Well, they 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 can't dig too deep into Tolkien's footnotes for that. But I I don't. I mean, I think it was it was enough to know that they were that that. That, um, well, excuse me. That Gandalf and uh, Frodo were and were were sailing were sailing away to a to a to a distant, timeless land. I think that's really all you need to know. And I do love the old man makeup on Bilbo. I think that's quite good. Yeah, it's not bad at all. Uh, shockingly mm. enough. I mean, they they don't make uh, Frodo look too much older, but he does look weary. Um. And that even Samwise gets married at the end. That's a nice sort of. I mean, it's set up very briefly in the first film, but well, I that also, payoff is but, good. Uh, but I also like that bit where, like, you know, the when the hobbits are all kind of back home and easing back into domestic life and talking about how they were key figures in one of the most important events in Middle Earth's history. But once they get home, all anybody cares about is like a giant pumpkin that one of their neighbors grew. <laughs> yeah, that's so that's so touching and so true. I love that. That return to normalcy, that now the world is safe, so now people have the luxury of, of getting really excited over produce. Huh. Like, those, those are the kind of things that I, that, that I, I, I wish those were the only things we had to worry about were the, si the humorous size of vegetables. Yes, wouldn't that be nice? That'd be a lovely world. Um... So, would you recommend Return of the King? I would. A sequel, yes. It 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 rounds out the trilogy. Um, and I and I and you know I won't judge people if you want to if you just want to stop the DVD uh, after the no we should bow to you go right ahead. But if you but if you if you've come to love these characters as I did, watch those watch those little goodbye scenes. They're they're very nice. I would say. Eh. I guess sequel, yes, but just barely. This is my least favorite film in the trilogy. I think the, the pacing is not that good. But you, you have some good sequences in here. Um, if you've watched this far, you might as well see how it ends. So I'm not really giving this one my whole ringing endorsement. Um, <laughs> anyway, we uh, let's do... So pitch a sequel. How do you do that for Return of the King? I thought about that. Yeah, and uh, my pitch a sequel 
takes these those little goodbye scenes and takes them further. That my pitch a sequel would be a Lord of the Rings anthology film, and it's all about every anthology film is simply a day in the life of a different Lord of the Rings characters, and we and we just get these little five minute vignettes that tell a complete story with a beginning and a middle and an end, just dealing with what their lives are like now that, you know, the big crises are wrapped up and they're sort of eased into the, to the, the pleasant lives they're supposed to have. So especially with the hobbits, things are very, very sort of domestic, very, very comical. We do get a little political, a little bit of political intrigue in the human kingdoms. Uh, we also get sort of a, just a nice touching moment with with uh, with all the characters that went to the Grey Havens. Simply, in and in fact, that's that's going to be the framing device. Is all the people who went to the Grey Havens just sort of casually talking about you know? Oh, I wonder. You know, I wonder what our friends we left behind. I wonder what they are doing. I wonder what their lives are like. I wonder if they'll ever join us. Um, but the stories do have some stakes. It's not because because that's the one thing. Those goodbye scenes are of no consequence. Because we know everything is fine within the context of each vignette in this uh, this anthology movie, there will be things at stake. The outcomes of the stories will matter in the lives of the characters. And uh, I will call it uh, I will call it Lord of the Rings, One Day in Middle Earth. Hmm. Because each story will also take place over one day. They might also be happening simultaneously, for all we know. Right, I you know if I were doing a, a sequel to this, I, I would probably do a, a prequel, and make it about um, Prince Isildur of Gondor, where it would maybe I think the end of it would be sort of the big fight between him and Sauron's forces, and where he gets the ring, but you you'd see sort of his his backstory and how he was uh, a noble, well liked man, and then he gets corrupted by the ring maybe in the middle i guess is when that battle would happen old man take a look at my ring i'm a lot like you yes and what would you call that one um the lord of the rings isidore gets a ring <laughs> If he liked it, then he should have put a ring on it. Right. And I think the the poster would be a close-up of his hand. All in orange and blue? Half orange, half blue, with the ring (laughs) in the middle kind of floating above his, his, or to the the slight to the right, floating above his ring finger. No, that'd be the left, sorry. Um, All right. There you go. And uh, so now let's uh, do what you're watching. I saw a documentary that was pretty interesting. What did you see? This was on... um, It was either on Hulu or Showtime. I don't recall which. Could it have been on Cinemax? Or Stars? No. Bravo? I just want to get the title right because it's complicated. Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. Oh, I have been meaning to see that. It's um, it's quite good. It's directed by uh, Marty Laneford. And 
they get Roger Corman to talk about it. I mean, it says Roger Corman's, but he was not the director. He was just the executive producer. Um, they talked to Lloyd Kaufman, which nice. uh, was surprised because he was approached to make it. But Lloyd Kaufman has been personal friends with Stan Lee for years. And he said, it looks like they didn't want to make a lot of, we couldn't make a lot of money from this. And I didn't want to jeopardize my friendship with Stan. So I, I passed on it. Um, Stan Lee does not talk about it, but in archival clips, he shits all over the film. Well, I've I never bet. seen I've never seen this, but um, the film has been on the convention circuit. You can get bootlegs of it for years and years now. Um, of, of varying levels of quality, always, whenever you buy from a bootlegger, uh, only buy from a bootlegger. I will, this is my this is my short advice that has a that has a, a DVD player set up where you can actually test the DVD and watch the film. Oh, that's a good uh, idea. I've, I've learned from experience if you buy if you buy a bootleg DVD from somebody who does not who is not screening their own films, there is a better than fifty percent chance there will be something wrong with that DVD. That being said, the uh, the bootleg DVD circuit is not as big as it was, say, like 20 years ago. Regrettably, yeah. Yeah, uh, I think both because of you know comic book movies being more popular and studios cracking down uh, on that sort of thing. I mean, you even have studios um, and comic book companies cracking down on... Oh, how do you say this? Um, they're, they're cracking down on fan art at conventions oh. and saying that's not allowed in some cases. Um which is a, a fascinating topic for another time. But yeah, this, but they talked to all the cast, the director, the editor, all these people. That, and basically this, the whole purpose of uh, Constantine Films, a, a German film company, <laughs> had had the right, when, believe it or not, Marvel was, was doing pretty bad in like the 80s and 90s. They almost went out of business in the 90s. Um, they came dangerously close. Yeah, and... Uh, there's a, a book, Marvel, The Untold Story, that goes into more details that I've been meaning to read. Uh, that, and they talked to the author of that book in this show. But uh, in Doomed, The Untold Story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four, you learn, and uh, I don't think... Th the basics of the story, I think, are well known in, in certain circles, but this gets into all the gory details. Constantine Films was going to lose the rights to Fantastic Four unless they made a movie within this time period. So they decided to make it for a budget of $1 million, which even in the late 90s was really cheap for this kind of a show. And uh, Roger Corman, I, I think, sort of um, co-financed it or something with Constantine Films. Constantine Films, you might recommend as being, you might recognize as being the producers of the Resident Evil films, uh, among others. So, but basically the film was made and supposed to be completed to sort of up the contract of selling the rights to Fantastic Four to, uh, as to it turned out, studio. Fox, to a bigger studio. And as a result of this, Roger Corman got a check for a million dollars. And he called the director of this Fantastic Four film that was never released thanking him. <laughs> and he ended up doing another film for Roger Corman, and he did another film for Constantine Films. The director came out pretty good, but the actors and all this stuff, they thought it would be a boost for their career. Um, well, well, even then, I was reading a lot of Marvel and DC comic books at the time, and I remember when, when the production started on this film, everyone thought this was going to be the Marvel film, that this was going to catapult the Fantastic Four to superstardom the way Tim Burton's Batman had done it with Batman. And the Marvel bullpen was constantly running updates about the production of the film and, and like quotes from the actors. And everyone, by all accounts, in, in, in a really authentic way, thought that this was going to be the next big thing. And it's a shame that 
uh, as some people said, the movie got unmade. Yes, I believe it only had... Um, it was supposed to have a premiere at the Mall of America. That Strange think, place to premiere it. Yes. Um, that got canceled at the last second. And in fact, when uh, the director of Fantastic Four... Uh, let me look up the guy's name. It's like Olam something or other. Olam Obis, no relation to Golan Globus. Yeah, Oli Sassone, um, who has since directed, you know, a lot of stuff on television, like Xeno Warrior Princess and, and all these other things, um, but has done other movies as well. Over 23 different things he's worked on. Also worked on uh, the TV show Martial Law, which nobody seems to remember, which was a knockoff of Rush Hour, but it starred uh, Sam Han. Anyhow, I was getting to a point which was, uh, yeah, the Oli, the director of Fantastic Four, when he learned about the real story of what was happening, which even he was kept in the dark until the very end, he went and uh, snuck off to where the master uh, final cut of the film was. And oh. he was going to steal a copy him and his assistant were going to steal a copy, dupe it so they had it for themselves, and then return it back. But even then, by that point, by the time he finally realized the deal went through, they had already shipped the film to, uh, I believe, Avi Arad has it. And supposedly he's destroyed the original. But um, anyway, I highly recommend this documentary. I hope I haven't spoiled too much of it. But they just you would like it in particular, Thrasher, because of all the details they go into. I do, I, and I, I've heard, and I, I, I had heard that this uh, that this documentary had been released, and I've been meaning to sit down and watch it. It just wasn't in the cards this past month for me. And it's so, so many, so many weird things have happened because of production companies wanting to hold on to film rights that they intend to speculate on and sell for more money. But like I'll have that. you know, Fantastic Four, the two big budget films that came out had Constantine Films listed as a production company because they still have a part of the rights. Yes, they're um, still technically connected to it. Uh, the same the same thing happened, uh, we'll talk about this more uh, next week, but the Sam Raimi Spider-Man film, Golan and Globus are mentioned in the, cre- in the home video credits to Sam Raimi's Spider-Man because they still technically owned a piece of the home video rights. It was supposed to have starred, we'll talk, you know, I think with Golan Globus, I saw some documentaries on them that got into Spider-Man, and it was supposed to star, I think, the lead from the American Ninja films. Yeah. Um, it was going to be Peter Parker. At one point, uh, um, James Cameron even wrote a script and was going to direct it. But I've read had, that script. It's not good. Is it not? No. Um, and But, you know, um, he was all excited to do it, but he couldn't because of the, all the rights issues with Spider-Man. Um so, I mean, yeah, it's Fantastic Four. It was kind of Marvel Comics, Stan Lee's first comic book hero that, that hit it big. I don't like Fantastic Four that much, to be honest, but even I found this documentary fascinating. And at the end, the the actors and the director makes a good plea, like, just why not release this on video? You'd make some money, man. Like, even if it's a, just a curiosity piece. You would. And, you absolutely and, would. And the actors talk about going to conventions and seeing the movies on sale and... uh the, of course, the people selling the bootleg still charges him full price for the bootleg. 
But there's a great, I'll just close this out, this uh, long review with a, a quote from the director of Fantastic Four, Oli Sassone. I didn't, when he found out about the chicanery going on, he says, I didn't know what to do. It felt like, you know, who do you go after? How do you, you know, I'm Sicilian. So I got this thing in me that says, I'm going to go fuck someone up for this, you know? <laughs> and uh, there's a lot of really raw emotion. Uh, even um, uh, the actor that played the thing, uh, who's been a, a stuntman in several big pictures, um, paid 10,000 bucks out of his own pocket to do a publicity tour for this movie at all the different conventions. Hmm. And, uh, and I'd, I'd love to see the movie, too. I mean, that's the thing. I need to just download a copy or, or buy a copy uh, from a bootleg. And uh, they did... Uh, the footage I've seen of The Thing uh, is actually quite good. Well, I mean, he, he looked right off the page of what was yep. in uh, in the comics at the time. And, 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 uh, it, and it, is, it yeah. is kind of strange that the cheapy Roger Corman version of the thing, in a lot of ways, is superior to the to the the one we got in the Michael the one with, played by Michael Chiklis. Now, Michael Chiklis is the perfect actor for that part, but there were some flaws in that design. It looks like a burn unit victim or something. It yeah, it doesn't quite work. Uh, also, hilariously, the actor that plays Doctor Doom uh, in this Roger Corman picture uh, mentions. Um, for some reason, the director liked the sound of what he sounded like behind the mask, but because of that, all his audio of Doctor Doom sounds like, <laughs> and he said, whenever this gets, if this ever gets a home video release, I've made it known that I'm more than willing to redub all my lines. Wow. So, yeah, highly recommended Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. Thrasher, what have you been watching? Well, by an amazing coincidence, I watched something related to comic books as well, and this is something I think you'll want to check out. Yep. Um, I watched an episode, uh, so there's a new Justice League series, animated series, called Justice League Action. Uh, I watched the episode Superman's Pal, uh, oh, what was it, Super, Superman's Pal uh, Sid Sharp. Okay. Which, which is notable because it it because what gets things going is it's all about this other reporter at the Daily Planet called Sid Sharp, who's Clark Kent's rival, and who gets increasingly frustrated that Clark Kent's always able to get the scoop on him with these big stories involving superheroes. Uh, but what's what's important about this is that Sid Sharp is voiced by none other than John Lovitz. Oh, does he look like John Lovitz? Yes, yes, he does. <laughs> he, it's a very flattering, the character design is a very flatteringly based on John Lovitz. But he plays it in a pure John Lovitzy way to the point where it's almost like the Jay Sherman, the critic from The Critic, is on the staff of the Daily Planet. And it's just great, you know, I have to get the scope of a century! And it's just great seeing him getting frustrated with Clark Kent. Uh, and eventually... He hatches this harebrained scheme to become to become a superhero, so that if he he figuring if he can be if he can be the Daily Planet's resident superhero, he'll always be able to get the scoop on superhero stories. And he even w makes for himself this schlubby version of Superman's costume. And one thing to keep in track is is that Justice League Action is a somewhat comical take on... It's not an outright comedy, but it's much more flexible and cartoonish version of the DC Universe. So 
Uh, the alien supervillain Apocalypse sends some parademons to Earth to kidnap Superman. The parademons, being dumb, find uh, Sid Sharp in his knockoff Superman costume and assume that must be Superman, so he gets kidnapped instead. I will send you a link. I think this is a picture from it, but it's... Um... Oh, is it is it the shot of uh, Sid Sharp in his Superman costume? It is. Yeah, th- th- it, you got you need to see this, viewers or listeners. It's, it's worth yeah. checking this episode out. It's only about it's slightly longer than ten minutes because they do like short, I think, two part episodes for just. Oh, League that Action. is short. Okay, but there's a lot of story packed into that. Uh, lots. Uh... Oh, and oh, who is there's one other thing. There's one other thing that stands out in this episode because a lot of because like uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the classic DC voice actors um, do come do come back in this. Uh, it's it's the you know the class the classic Kevin Conroy Batman Batman is back as Kevin Conroy. Okay. Um, the uh, which is pretty cool. Uh, but what's really cool is in the previous DC animated universe. Um, the villain Granny Goodness was played by Ed Asner. No, uh, but in Justice League Action, Granny Goodness is played by Cloris Leachman, and she does an amazing job. Okay, huh? I hope so was Ed Asner playing a woman vocal. before. Uh, yes, the character is a, is a woman. Like B. Arthur would have been the perfect voice, but I suspect they couldn't get B. Arthur because the Ed Asner sounds almost like he's doing a B. Arthur impression. But Cloris Leachman is perfect for this role. Uh, I, I certainly hope they get more use out of her as Granny Goodness. Who I will that, argue is one of the most terrifying and evil villains in the DC Universe, despite her cutesy name. At any point, does uh, Sid Sharp smoke a cigar? No, no, we never see him smoke a cigar. That's uh, too bad. We do see him in a cage, complaining and ranting and using the power of his John Lovitz whining <laughs> against a group of supervillains, which is pretty fun. So yeah, if you want to see a nice John Lovitz performance, check out uh, Superman's pal Sid Sharp from Justice League Action. Does he say that's the ticket? Regrettably, no. Uh, he doesn't say any lines. Like he he comes dangerously close, but they don't out they don't do any outright references to any of his previous work. So he doesn't say it stinks or anything like that. They let Sid Sharp stand stand as his own character. Very good. I'll have to check that out. Pretty cool. So, um, next week, uh, listeners, we'll be talking about the first of the Sam Raimi Spider-Man films. Simply titled Spider-Man. This is going to be a fun trilogy. I think so. And, um, I I have a bit of, I have a question, and you might know the answer. Why does Spider-Man have a hyphenate in the name? I (laughs) believe, I... I have heard varying accounts on this, uh, both of which are apocryphal, so I can't I cannot say whether they are they are factual. Uh, one is that from a graphic design standpoint, they wanted to make sure the name looked very different from Superman on the page, and so a hyphen does that. Ah, okay. Yeah. Um, and then alternatively, I've also heard that since this this was the early the very beginnings of the marvel age this was after the fantastic 4 but uh, before x men if i remember correctly and that 
uh, Stan Lee was just much more of a stickler with his editing, and for whatever reason thought that a hyphen was more grammatically correct in a uh, superhero's name. Although it's interesting is if you look at the SEO results, uh, Spider-Man without the hyphenate gets more results than Spider-Man with a hyphenate. Well, a lot of people are barbarians. Uh, yes. <laughs> and they don't know how Spider-Man is spelled. But then again, you know, he is, you know, part spider, part man, so it does kind of make sense, where as far as Superman is all super and all man. I really love the design for, I think it's the doppelganger. Is that the Spider-Man monster with um, six arms? Oh, with the extra legs? arms? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, the tra- the transgenic mutant Spider-Man, yeah. <laughs> I love that one. That's It's like the most literal interpretation of what Spider-Man could look like. Well, you know, this this might be a bit too much sausage-making, but as part of this trilogy, do you want to do a special episode about depictions of Spider-Man and other media? Um, maybe. Let me think about it. All right. Well, I, I, will, I will definitely touch on it at least at the end, uh, because there have been some fascinating, some fascinating things done with Spider-Man in the world of animation and video games and so forth. Oh, certainly. I, I watched the uh, Spider-Man Fox uh, show from the, the 90s when I was in high school, and I look at, back at it now, and the character designs are kind of terrible. But, well, um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating... Uh, maybe we'll save, do this more in depth if we do that special yeah. episode, but that's, that's a show where the writing was brilliant, the animation mm-hmm. was bottom of the barrel. And this is a post-Batman animated series world that this show took place in. Yeah, I mean, if you thought the X-Men cartoon from the 90s looked bad, this one looked like ten times worse. Although there was a reason for that. Production began on that show the same time that production began on one of the aborted attempts to make a Spider-Man movie. It was supposed to be the animated tie-in to that film, but then the film got canned, uh, and they were so deep into production that they figured, well, we got to animate something. But their budget got cut since it was no longer a tie into a film franchise, which is why the bottom of why the bottom kind of fell out of the animation real early on. And I believe the last episode of that series is Spider-Man's origin story. Uh, actually, that is not the case. The origin story came later, but the final episode, the final act, the final episode of the '90s Spider-Man animated series is one of the best Spider-Man stories ever done. Uh, but I will save that for its own episode. Okay, I stand corrected. Um, so, next week we'll be doing Sam Raimi's Spider-Man, kicking off our look at that trilogy. Follow me on Twitter, at M-A-T-W-B-T. And follow me, at Internet Mayor. You can also listen to SequelCast 2 uh, streaming at Stitcher. Just look up SequelCast 2. And um, hey, you got some shekels? We need some shekels. Check out our SequelCast Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash SequelCast 2. And if the Patreon's full, check out our Patreon. That's right. So for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. Saying. You think they'll tell stories about us, Mr. Matt? You think in, in ages to come they'll still remember us and the Sequel Cast 2? I don't know. They might. Or they might not. Let me tell you something, laddie. I what the hell is that? Oh. You started as Ringo Starr, and then you turned yeah. into Mr. Scott from Star Trek. Ringo Star Trek. That would be a show. Oh, it's very mm-hmm. illogical, Captain. Is it? I really don't think it is. I don't know what that is. <laughs> Shiny shoes, Governor. <laughs> Shiny shoes, Governor. Yes, yes. Oh, I, I, I'm about to clean your chimney. I'll make it nice and clean. And when I clean your chimney, I'm going to clean your jeans. Ha <laughs> ha
<laughs> that, that almost became erotic. Almost. Um, I, I like the idea of like <laughs> like body cockney rhymes. Uh. Yeah, the uh, reminds me real quick. I uh, I was watching a thirty minute video of bloopers from Wing Commander Three. <laughs> yeah. And and so in that game, famously, you pick good and bad choices for what the character does. Right, and so yeah. basically, Mark Hamill is either like a a hero or an asshole. But I guess one line reading, Malcolm McDowell is yelling at Mark Hamill saying, like, can you say that and sound less like an asshole? And basically every time Mark Hamill did it on camera, like Malcolm McDowell would laugh and point it out and say, asshole, to the point where Mark Hamill's feelings got hurt and he refused to do any more takes of that scene. Oh, God, there, there was some great it, behind... It, it's a really good clip, though. It's some, I mean... There were... It, Great yeah. behind-the-scenes stories from that. One of his co-stars was it? Was it? Was Ginger Lynn the the porn star? Yes, one of his co-stars. Yep. So yeah, so th- this was like yeah. the first big, and this was a sensation at the time. It was the first big non-porn thing she ever did as the the female lead on Wing Commander Three. And there's a there was an interview with Mark Hamill in I think it was PC Gamer uh, <laughs> where he was talking about how when his fans found out he was going to be in a movie with Ginger Lynn, they started sending him Ginger Lynn VHS tapes. And he's like, so, so please, if you're a fan of mine, don't send me these tapes. I, I'm not making that kind of movie. I'm not going to watch them. And my wife is getting really, really angry that these keep showing up on our <laughs> mailbox. There's, there's a, I think the most famous blooper from Wing Commander Three is there's a scene where Mark Hamill, like basically, he puts his hand on on Maniac, who's played by Tom Wilson, better known as Biff from Back to the Future. He's Perfectly basically playing cast. Biff in space, really. Um, Perfectly cast in that in that yeah. game. And, and he and he says like, "You keep on thinking that, buddy," and walks off. And then Tom Wilson improvises a line. One of his improvised lines as Mark Hamill walks off is, "Hey, isn't that that guy from Star Wars?" <laughs> and he had to apologize deeply to Mark Hamill afterwards because Mark Hamill was at a point in his career where he kind of resented Star Wars. Yeah, he he had drifted away from it at that point. Although now he's drifted back into it. I think he's kissed and made up with the. Well, he's come, he he's at that age where he he really he comes to turn he's come to terms with his position in pop culture. Although one of the most entertaining uh, bits of Mark Hamill ephemera, uh, Mark Hamill plays himself and a drill sergeant in an episode uh, of The Simpsons, and he is on the audio commentary for that episode. Uh, and he talks a bit about his, his relationship with the fandom. And one of the things he talks about is when he first read the script, he was, like, angry because he thought they were making fun of him. He's like, oh, no, they're not making fun of me. They're telling great jokes, and they want me to help tell the jokes. Like, I, how dare you write this into the episode? I would never go to a convention dressed up as Luke Skywalker for money. <laughs> this, you know, I, I wouldn't go there to a convention to talk about Star Wars. I want to talk about things I'm doing now, like, and then he rattled off like all these projects he was involved cartoons, in yeah. at the time, like his comic book Black Pearl and things like that. Oh, Mark Hamill's been trying to do Black Pearl as a movie for years. You, you think now that now that he's huge again, that's that maybe that'll happen. That would be pretty cool. Well, this has a been big... a special extra long edition of sequel. Yeah, cast. Mark Mark Hamill tangent cast. Um, I'm sure, we could do that as a spinoff. Okay, so um, Hamming it up on that, Hamill. Let's try that ending again. So, for okay. sequel cast two. This is Matt. <laughs> this is Thrasher. Saying sequel cast, sequel cast, watching movies on sequel cast, franchises we explore. 
games. Even if we get kind of bored, look out. Here comes the sequel cast. Can he fly? Listen, bud. He's got radioactive blood. Oh, look over there. What is that? It's Sandman there. And look, he killed Uncle Ben. And now he's crying on a building. Watch out for Spider-Man. Now, what did we say earlier about rhyming things with things? If you never say hello You won't have to say goodbye And Lowe's foretold The epoch of the return of the king Ends at the beginning Of the new age of man If you never say Sequelcast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Find other great film and TV podcasts at battleshippretension.com. The theme song to Sequelcast 2 is written and performed by Mark with the Sea. Listen to his music at markwiththesea.com. You can also listen to Sequelcast 2 on the go at Stitcher. Head on over to stitcher.com and search for Sequelcast 2 to give it a listen. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension fleet. 